This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. We have our full complement today, though we're all a little bit beat up in different ways. Whether or not that will come across over the course of the episode remains to be seen. I'm a little under the weather. Nina's tired. Helen's jet-lagged. We're all <laughs> facing some level of adversity today. But we're going to do Hell or High Water. <laughs> and I'll kick us off. Hell or High Water came out in 2016. Chris Pine, my favorite Chris, and Ben Foster play two brothers in a tight spot. You see, they're about to lose the family farm because their recently deceased mother was tricked into taking out a reverse mortgage. Now the Texas Midlands Bank is calling time on the debt, and there isn't enough cash on hand to settle it. The brothers have just now discovered oil on the land, but they don't have enough time for the oil revenue to change the situation. The bank wants its money, and it wants its money now. So the brothers resolve to give it to them. They conduct a series of bank robberies, stealing money from branches of the very same bank to which they owe money. Each time they rob a bank, they bury the getaway car and launder the money at an Indian casino. The brothers both grew up poor, but they are different from one another. Toby, played by Pine, is careful and conscientious. He doesn't have a criminal record, and he doesn't want one. Tanner, played by Foster, is a career criminal. His expertise is crucial, but he sometimes takes unnecessary risks. The brothers are tailed by a pair of Texas Rangers. Jeff Bridges plays Marcus, who is closing in on retirement. Gil Birmingham plays Alberto, his younger partner. They have an odd couple buddy cop dynamic. Marcus makes racist jokes, and Alberto puts up with them. It's very tropey, but the actors execute it very well. Eventually, the brothers try to rob a crowded bank. A large number of people makes the situation harder to control. Some of the customers have guns of their own. They fire on the brothers, and Tanner is forced to kill two people. The brothers flee the scene, but the townsfolk start up an old-fashioned posse. They pursue the brothers, and eventually Toby is wounded. Tanner gets out an automatic weapon and uses it to scare the townsfolk off, but it is clear to both of them that the walls are closing in. Marcus and Alberto's arrival is imminent. The brothers split up. Toby takes the money, while Tanner creates a diversion for the rangers. The diversion ends in a shootout. Tanner kills Alberto, and a heartbroken Marcus kills Tanner. But Toby gets away, and he saves the family farm. He doesn't have a criminal record, and there is no firm evidence of his involvement. Marcus visits the farm, hoping to get Toby to admit involvement, but Toby holds firm. As the oil rigs pump, he tells Marcus, I've been poor my whole life, like a disease passing from generation to generation. But not my boys, not anymore. In this final scene, Marcus and Toby offer two contrasting perspectives on the film. For Toby, Texas Midlands cheated his mother out of her house. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. If he played by the rules and let the bank take the ranch, his children would go out, grow up in poverty, and they'd end up its products. He committed the crime to end all crimes, the act that makes all similar acts unnecessary. Private property begins in violence, and only later is it enshrined in law. When it is legally sanctioned, the violence of the past is etched in stone. Those who carried out the violence before the law was written are rewarded. They have their gains protected. But those who would use the same violence after the law is written, in pursuit of the same ends, do the verboten. Once the law is written, those who understand the law can use it to steal, and those who do not understand the law are condemned to be its victims. The wealthy person, whose ancestors long ago seized wealth through violence, now enjoys access to the kind of education that facilitates the abuse of the law. The reverse mortgage is a kind of legal theft, committable by the bank that knows the law upon the elderly poor who do not. Of course, Marcus doesn't see it this way. Alberto was his partner, and even though he racially abused Alberto at every opportunity, Marcus loved the guy. The brothers terrified the townspeople and killed multiple people. If violence is, in some situations, the only way to escape poverty, it still has a heavy price. When violence becomes the principle by which we redistribute, 
Its purveyors escape poverty at the expense of everyone else in the general vicinity. Even when you try to limit collateral damage, and Toby did try, inevitably, wealth extracts its price. But the brothers had no legal or political recourse. This was, by all accounts, the only way to save the family farm. And when we back people up against a wall, they grab whatever is to hand, be it sharp or pointy. I really like Hell or High Water because I think that, more than any other film, it captures the feeling of the mid-tens. There was, in 2015 and 2016, an acute awareness that the economic system that caused the crisis of 2008 had been left untouched. The Barack Obamas and David Camerons not only failed to use the crisis to make the system work better, in many respects they used the crisis to make things harder for people. Without reform or revolution, there is only crime and destitution. In the mid-tens, we were conscious of this, and we were troubled by it, and we had not yet buried those feelings under Trump, Brexit, and the culture wars. Today in the United States, political ads depict disorder and depravity, warning us that if the bad people win, the country will become even crueler. But cruelty lies not in what the other side does, but in what both sides refuse to do. All right, let's hear from Helen. Cool. No, I love this film a lot, and I really like the work of Tyler Sheridan, who wrote it. Um, he did Sicario, this film quite soon after, and then um, Wind River. It's interesting because he was an actor, he became a writer, and he actually um, is a very good director as well, but he clearly was not allowed to direct this. But it was well-directed as well, but I just think it's uh, it's interesting, maybe reflects on some of the illogic of capitalism that, that is expressed in um, the film as well. So yeah, as you mentioned, Benjamin, this is sort of this film. I think it was first screened at festivals in uh, 2015, so the pre-deplorable era. And it's interesting. I mean, um, we've talked about a lot how um, there is this sort of like oppositional logic currently of the liberal elite and the red state, and um, from let's say um, some of the people who've tapped into the quote-unquote uh, red state anguish, there is this ideological kind of concept that everybody. Um, and the liberal elite thinks a certain way. And there are films that do come on, you know, it, it's difficult because I do still maintain that the logic of the market um, destroys a, much possibility for anything like emancipatory. But, you know, you do get pockets of things and you do get films um, that don't speak into um, pure oppositionality. Um, and But the fact is, though, that this is pre-deplorable and this is a very respectful film about uh, issues that are affecting still even worse, potentially, um, people living in these flyover states. Um, and it's interesting as well that this is like a very red state film, um, but it's very much like explicitly Marxist, I would say, whether it's intentional or not. And it does actually maybe make it a bit more difficult to talk about because almost it's very obvious what's being said and it's being said very well. But at the same time, even though it's very explicit um, and we know really what might be thematically being expressed. It still works on a filmic level. It brings us in. It's very gripping and it's it's excellently made. But at the same time, even saying like, oh, what a contradiction. Um, this is a, a Marxist film in a red state. You know, there is an interesting history between republicanism and workers' rights that gets forgotten. And again, in this sort of like oppositional, um, solipsistic ideological age that we're in, it's sort of like, this equals this. If you're this kind of person, you're this. If you're a Democrat, you're that. And actually, the history of um, politics in America is much more contradictory than that. And, you know, it is ironic, of course, that maybe um, consciously in the sort of red state world, if you go on about being a Marxist, this might get you, um, you know, metaphorically hanged in some sense you know you might be sort of cast out as an you know you mentioned the word socialism or marxism in certain settings and it's sort of oh my god you can't you know this is awful but at the same time um there is a, a history there that's more complex in terms of um demarcating and bringing out the contradiction in capitalism than we see you know that that that's maybe ideologically considered to be a, a blue state um, Democrat thing, but that's really not the case. Obviously, there is this contradiction in, in um, conservative, the conservative world tying itself to capital. So, um, you know, these people that vote for, or you know, as the UK is really essentially paying for Thatcherism, 
and um, things like, you know, you hear people saying like, well, it all started with Brexit or it all started with Trump. But of course, and this film points this out, like this is a really, really long history. And even though the history of um, workers' issues is much more um, complex, contradictory and, you know, um, and fraught than just like Democrat versus Republican and Labour versus Conservatives. The fact is that Reagan and Thatcher tied as quote unquote conservatives tied themselves to the kind of um, uh, market logic that had impact on these places like this this red state setting in a way that is 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 causing um, the uh, the sort of the background that instigates the action in this film. Um, you know, and there's something, you know, one one thing that really came to mind when I was watching this was like, God, capitalism shit, isn't it? I hate capitalism. You know, so it's very obviously bleak. Um, but I guess if we're talking about something, you know, what points we can make that are more interesting than that? Um, there is this idea that this is a this is a, a Wild West film, a Western film. And so maybe it's sort of playing off that nostalgic enjoyment that and there's actually a, a, a phrase that um uh, somebody in one of the coffee shops that the police go to after the brothers have eaten there, who says um, the time of robbing banks and spending the money is long gone. So it's sort of like, you know, in this Marxist sense, everything sacred is prof- profaned. Obviously, the, 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 these Western movies are nostalgic for something that went before that was to do with capitalism. But this, um, there's maybe this idea that the film is playing off where this is a... Uh, Wild West film, which is to do with, you know, excess and enjoyment and people, broady people and bars or whatever. And it's literally stripped back to pure um, capitalist exploitation. It's like very directly Marxist. And we see like things like the leveling out. So there's a callback to the cow, you know, and I'm not saying like um, in terms of real American history, I'm talking about cinematic history here, but like um, caught hearkening back to like the cowboys and Indians and that sort of like carnivalesque conflict that you get in you know old-fashioned western films and it's really leveled out in the relationship between um marcus and alberto where you know the conflict of cowboys and indians that was violent and exciting as depicted in these movies i'm not talking about the actual history of it which is obviously like much more horrific i'm talking about the staged version and in this film it's been reduced to like a little bit of jibing between you know disgruntled colleagues so it's really kind of stripped back but I guess um, the thing that really struck me most was this idea of death drive and capitalism. You know, death drive is inevitable. As soon as humans speak, it is a, a ne- an inevitable um, phenomenon in human life, in human subjectivity. And there are ways that we can understand it and harness it collectively and individually, um, we can, uh, but that's that's a whole different uh, topic to get into and would be, you know, hours and hours of conversation. But what capitalism has done is that, you know, it, it, it appears to be like the most logical, rational system of exchange, but really it has formalized death drive into the very system of exchange itself. And the main kind of uh, death drive or illogic that is really toxic in capitalism is um, surplus value. And the the stark um, gap that exists between um, an object and what is fairly um, what's the fair value of that object, and I think that this uh, idea of um, this land, this basically the whole premise, the whole reason why these guys are going off robbing banks, is basically for a very small amount of money, and it, it seems illogical, you know, and part of the reason why one of the brothers, quote unquote, gets away with it is that it seems so illogical that these these guys have gone after such you know 20s and 10s and very little money when he's going to be ending up um earning 50k a month um for his land but i mean that's precisely how capitalism works it's 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 in a way kind of ironic that they're like oh this doesn't make any sense so it can't possibly be this guy but it's like no this is precisely the logic of capitalism that basically just because their mother got into a tiny amount of debt um, you know, took out a small, very small reverse mortgage. This imprisoned her to the point where so much money was off the table. You know, it's not like um, 
you know, once you get into debt, the debt just piles up and piles up and piles up. It's this infinite logic, this rapaciousness that's not, and this is, this is where surplus value really comes in. It's not a one-to-one exchange. Obviously, it's that, um, the, the person on one side of surplus value is able to extract to the point of obscenity and just to get back on a level footing with the bank. So to, to pay off, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars, they have to go um, on this murderous rampage. Um, I won't talk about the um, the whole nature of um, the corporation and the amount of money that he's um, getting in the latter part of the film or the fact that it sort of settles in this way and it ends with him having um, gained access to this money, which he has kind of secured for his sons. I think that's a different issue. Um but it is, you know, the, the, the Wild West has been leveled out, um, raised by uh, bare corporate capitalism. All right. Let's hear what Nina has to say. Yeah, I, um, I really appreciated what both of you um, had to say. I, yeah, I, I don't have too much more to, to add, actually, <laughs> uh, in a way. I thought it was a very precisely in the way that Benjamin was saying this interesting moment in the post-financial crisis. Initially, I wanted there to be more about the economic aspects, uh, you know, like, uh, when uh, when you think about films from this period, I'm not quite sure the year, but like The Big Short and films that kind of more directly try to explain the financial crisis. But of course, I soon realised that it's not that kind of film <laughs> and that that would be, you know, it is implicitly that kind of film. And in fact, it's better for not being didactic, right? I think it, it is precisely playing into these, yeah, those tropes about um, America's past, the question of violence and law, which we also discussed when we talked about that Western and the kind of founding, I can't remember the name, um, the founding of America as a kind of foreclosing on the violence and, and you know, which is the acceptable form of violence once it's been institutionalized and codified in the form of financial violence, then it's legitimate violence, right, in inverted commas. And obviously this is the whole history of capitalism. This is also very well um, uh, in uh, examined in Deadwood, which was a great uh, HBO series, which which similarly dealt with the founding of America. Um, as I think both of you have pointed out, there's also this kind of um, uh, ref- reference back to um, uh, American uh, colonialism in the form of the exploitation of uh, the native population um, and this kind of question in the background, even before the kind of founding of capitalism or you know, just before you have the kind of question of, of territory and land, if you like. So that all of these different forms of accumulation um, are in the film very subtly in the intrapersonal relationship. So the the question of who owns the Great Plains. So the just before the one of the, the, the robber is shot, the sort of uh, naughty brother, as it were, the criminal brother, I should say. Naughty is a bit too silly a word. Um, you know, he says something like, I'm king of the Great Plains. And Earlier in the, the the film, the discussion with the uh, Native uh, American partner of the the police ranger, there is a, a a discussion about who owns which land, and and you know the the, the Native American man uh, talks about how 150 years ago this would have been his uh, tribe's land, and also you had the that question in the Indian. Um, the casinos as well, like this kind of loss of territory, this loss of. Um, a certain kind of masculinity also is is running through as a thread through this. Um, I, I like the idea of the posse. I haven't thought of that, that word for a long time, but yes, ex- exactly. The when the when the townsfolk themselves take it upon themselves to restore justice, there is this sense of a kind of collective vigilantism, which is also a feature of uh, poor parts of America. And I have to say, this film is very. It films the area beautifully, like the landscape, the final shootout in this this you know very desert area, the roads, the farmers. There's a very beautiful scene with the farmers, and the 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 field is burning, and they're trying to move their cows to the to the water. And you really get a very strong sense of the whole landscape, and actually of the difficulties and the sort of strangeness of 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 this. I guess it's West Texas, is that right? 
uh, this part of America, you know, which I, I've never visited. I would, I'd love to visit the state, you know, but you, there's a rattlesnake. This, it's, it's a really very, very evocative, um, depiction. It's a very, it is a very, very good film. And I, I think precisely it's, it, it succeeds on all of these levels and the acting and, and everything. But I think at the level of its moral ambiguity, because precisely in the way that it holds open the question of not only, um, was was there a kind of justice in uh you know stealing the money in order to sort of um you know solve in a Robin Hood way the problem of the black the bank's exploitation of the of the boys' mothers and as Benjamin talked about you know to end the cycle of poverty um you know and break that kind of generational inheritance but also you have the kind of other moral characters you know you have at least three moral actors or groups of actors in the film you know it's you have the police rangers who are doing their job uh that you have the the townsfolk who are also keen to protect and preserve their their you know the people who work in the bank and their own sense of moral justice and then you have the the brothers and 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 even the differences between the brothers as as has also been mentioned so you have i think you know in a way in a very good way, a kind of openness, really, about who or what did the right thing in in the sense that everybody loses, there is violence, everybody commits violence, uh, almost everybody kills, I think we could say of all of these groups, there is a, at the very least, actual murder, if if not, you know, p- a potential murder in the form of the defensive uh, aggression of the townsfolk and so on, right? So this is a film about violence, obviously, it's a film about violence and capital, but it doesn't tell you... It, I agree with Helen that it is a Marxist film, right? But I, I think it's not didactic. So it's it's a rare example of a non-didactic <laughs> film, which is clearly Marxist in its analysis, but I think leaves open the question of the moral solution, if any, to this problem. Um, because it's not, it's not so clear that everything is solved, resolved in in any great way, you know. I mean, even even if this one family has managed to break the cycle through, you know, almost like returning the violence of capital through the violent, you know, re- reappropriation of the appropriators, right? And obviously, Brecht's very famous sentence, you know, what is the the robbing of a bank compared to the founding of a bank? You know, this in a way, this entire film is is basically like an explication of Brecht's very you know, pithy claim about, you know, where the real exploitation and violence of capital lies. And um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, th- I suppose I just want to like uh, recognise its moral ambiguity and, and celebrate it in a way. And I do think it was a very um, good film for, for indeed, as Benjamin said, b- before all the culture war stuff, before whatever phase we're in now, hopefully we're coming to an end and maybe we'll get back to more material analysis and, you know, more actual empiricist thinking about class and all of those things that the the left should be doing. Um, it, it, yeah, it, it does follow up from the, the, the economic crisis and, and all of those questions of foreclosure. And we must remember all of those situations where you had families literally living in the house that they had the bank had foreclosed on and then they were therefore squatting in the property that they had formerly uh, had a mortgage on, right? So there were many situations and a lot of the time uh, this was also vigilante action by people in towns who were basically protecting the people who were now living in the house that they could no longer afford to live in that was, was technically owned by the bank but other people were, you know, in a way protecting them from retribution for that reappropriation um, you know, and that whole period was, of course, based on uh, giving poor people mortgages that the banks knew they couldn't afford. You know, this was literally and then selling on the bad debt in, in bundles uh, and people profiting off the percentage of people who, who will default on those loans. And of course, it was going to come to an end. And of course, that's what happened. Um, and I think all we can see loans, loan arrangements happening like this all the time. The student loan situation, for example, in the UK, people profit off of speculating what percentage of students will default on their loans. I mean, this is how you make money off of loans, right? It's not it's not even the loans. It's the speculation on the loans. Um, 
you know, and, and so I think in that way, it's a very, it's a very clever film. It, it it really is a very entertaining film that at the same time has this strong economic message and that leaves open the kind of question of what the moral solution to that uh, economic question is. And I think that's great. And you know, I actually think the re- what makes it a Marxist film is precisely that it's not didactic. You know, I think that, yeah, like, it to be like to have a Hegelian, maybe like overly generous interpretation, like that which doesn't turn the contradiction to opposition, I would say is Marxist. Mm-hmm. And we see today, and we've seen so much how much um, capitalism, how much a lot of quote unquote left wing political, a political dialogue, I don't like to call this stuff oppositional stuff political. And this is what makes this film precisely a political film. It's not didactic, it's thematic, it draws these things out but it's very morally ambiguous. The owl of Minerva f- mm. uh, flies at, at dusk, etc. Like these people who assume to know for sure, we can, we can, Marx uses this Hegelian lens to, to, to get real purchase on what is actually happening in capitalism, but then to decide with moral righteous certainty in an oppositional sense is precisely the dynamic that Marx is pointing out as capitalist. And we see so much of this like um, fake leftism or like just let's just say aesthetic leftism that just papers over the dynamics in capitalism and allows it to continue. Um, and I think it's precisely the, the like humility um, and ambiguity that, that makes it a successful Marxist film. It's interesting, like there's, there's so many little... Um, point us towards this period, as you say, in terms of banking, you know, um, when they, the first bank that's robbed, um, Marcus is interviewing uh, some of the employees and the head banker sort of walks in for the morning and he said, oh yeah, that looks like somebody who could foreclose on you. That's how he identifies the banker. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a point where um, the brothers have to buy a new vehicle and in the, I mean, there's lots of kind of like billboards everywhere, which is like, there's not very much in terms of production design and background, but there are a lot of like, it's almost like that they live type messages of like bad debt, you know, bad credit, we can give you loans or whatever. But yeah, this, this place where they buy a truck, there's a big sign that says, you know, like no credit, bad mm. credit, we can, we can. So the, yeah, it does really fit. Um, mm. It is a sort of commentary. And there were a lot of good films that came out at that time, you know, um, was it 99 Homes was quite good um, but yeah and it's interesting though that that this period didn't go far enough you know and we, we've gone from having um, this issue in capitalism the bailing out of the banks these like austerity hungry liberal like um, feel good um, consolatory in an aesthetic way you know you had the um Lib Dem conservative coalition. And now we really have um, like billionaire politicians. It's like, it's just a gradual decline. And, and again, it's like, we don't know where we're going, but this is where we have gone. Yeah. A couple of things that really date the film. One is the treatment of the police officers. They're treated very sympathetically. And I think that's one of the non-didactic aspects that makes the film so wonderful, that police officers are fully human people in this film. And you have an old white police officer who says every kind of of horrific racial thing that you might imagine. And yet that is compatible with having a deep personal affection for his indigenous partner. Uh, And I think that that is something that you really struggle to find in contemporary art, this ambiguity of the person who says one thing but acts in a, in a different way. It's now assumed that if you say something racial, that that implies an entire attitude and an entire way of acting and treating people. And often, behavior is much more contradictory than that. And people can have ways of relating to one another that are a lot more complicated. This film depicts that, I think, very faithfully. And the other thing that I think dates it is, I mean, they're still discovering oil on the land of small farmers in Texas. I mean, it feels like it's been a while since there's been a lot of new oil discoveries in (laughs) Texas. 
And at this point, most of the small farmers, I mean, there's this trope about the small family farm, but most of the small family farmers have already had their land taken from them in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. The big bust in the 80s where the, the small farmers were trying to acquire more and more and more land and bigger and bigger and nicer combines to keep up until they reached a point where they could no longer sustain themselves and many of them went bust. You know, that happened at this point. 40 or 50 years ago in the States when most of the small farmers sold out. And at this point, a lot of farmland is owned by Bill Gates. It's owned by the Chinese. It's not the same world that it used to be. Uh, And so in some ways, this film is very 20th century. The depiction of the possible farmer labor 30s kind of movement where you have the worker in an alliance with the small farmer that's something that has completely gone out the window. And it's something that was not just important to the left in Canada and the United States, but also important in Europe. The the farmers played a very significant role in social democracy, democratic socialism, creation of the health services, and so on. A pivotal role. And there aren't very many of them around anymore. And as a consequence of that, you're now left mm. with the people who made it, who became, you know, rich farmers uh, and then everybody else is is left destitute and kind of lumpen in in these rural communities and so in some ways the film depicts a a world of some level of possibility and i think that the possibility in rural areas is more restricted even than that yeah i think i think that's a really really good point and i think we have seen like a war on farmers in the last two, you know 3 4 years whether it's the deni- well, the the literal punishing of farmers in terms of having their land stolen and and you know not being kind of um, you know paid properly for their food, the billionaires buying up the farmland. You know, obviously we've seen attacks on farmers every time they try to block supply chains, or you know going back to the gilets jaunes or the farmers in or the truckers in Canada, the farmers in uh, Amsterdam. You know, we've seen various protests around food production and supply chains in recent years, which are. Again, often, and the other, well, the other thing that came to mind, which is related to that is, you know, we published a very interesting piece by Crowder in Compact, who is a union organizer. And he points out that most of the complaints that he has to deal with are basically um, jokes that have gone wrong, usually along kind of racial or gender lines, right? So someone is joshing around at work with a friend and they, you know, they say something inappropriate or maybe, you know, there's this kind of, but at the same time, it's, it's quite right that often, in when we're being friendly with someone, our interpersonal uh, communication is slightly rude. Like it's, you know, it's a, a sign of friendship, right? And, and you know, I, you're right that the film is actually quite daring in doing this. I mean, this is very much like Zizek's point about, you know, the the friendship only begins once you've insulted someone's mother or, you know, made a racial comment or insulted them, you know, and that there is something very true about that. And just to finish on this union piece, it's very, very interesting because Crowder is saying he's an old school union activist whose job it is to prevent people from losing their job, right? So he's on the side of labor, obviously. He's on the side of the laborer, the worker, and he's saying the problem with the woke discourse for a union organizer is that there is is just absolutely inflexible, right? So you have these two tensions. You you know, if you're trying to save someone from, you know, a working class person from losing their job, and they've said something in, like inappropriate work, right? As happens all the time, people joshing about, you know, whatever. From the woke point of view, the worker should just be sacked and fired and cancelled, and how could they, right? But from the union point of view, and from the labour point of view. He's trying to protect their job, <laughs> you know, and and yeah, and but look this for... is exactly it, though. Yeah, I'd... but this is yeah, this is this is where wokeism has nothing to do with left wing politics at all. But it's again this fake, mm. it's this aesthetic of being left wing, and it is absolutely, it's absolutely on the side of capital. Absolutely, you know, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So if you were a boss and you were looking for ways to get rid of staff, and people start complaining to you about each other then it's, you're just making the boss's job easier. I mean, I know this yeah, is so obvious. I know we talked about this before. You know, cancel culture is in favour of the bosses. Like, you're doing the bosses' work for them. You're doing the cops' work for them. You're basically being a snitch. And how can losing someone their employment, which they depend upon, to survive be a left-wing tactic? It's obviously not. 
But yeah, this is this is the turning of contradiction to opposition. And it's like you can be as a left wing aesthetic, mm-hmm. but still completely right wing. And on the side of capital, like, you know, so the joshing that happens between Marcus and Alberto is precisely what within the audience makes us understand that they're totally fraternal and very close, you know, even though they, you know, they, they grumble at each other, they have a connection that is one of love precisely through jokes that now are offensive, but they're offensive because as you point out, you know, this is absolutism where if you're this type of person, you're offended by that. If you're this, but that, but that logic of if you are this, then you are that is this totalitarian which therefore does not take into consideration contradiction and isn't total enough, right-wing logic that imprisons us. That really, and, and the thing is, as you say, like, um, the, it, it's interesting that we say this is like, this is a contradiction or whatever. But in a way, I mean, I do think everything is eventually contradictory, but I think this is actually much more simple than that. It's that like <laughs> the, these things, but this is, this is the capitalist turn. This is the ideological turn that we are convinced by the AOCs of the world that like they, they have this left-wing pattern, therefore they're left-wing, but they're precisely um, doing the repression of contradiction on behalf of capital. And when we've seen these outbursts of left-wing um, emancipatory potential over the last 10 years, where have they come from? These workers who don't identify Mm. with woke discourse and therefore ideologically it's like oh they're so right wing but since when do they have anything with being to do with being right wing what this is just a purely ideological like fucking that's that's the lie but you know also i wanted to talk about um, you know this it's interesting the word deplorable was used you know a year after this film what was it with the year that you know, the public got to w- watch it in 2016 and it's a very sympathetic film and like it's only it's only kind of got worse. And as I say, like, again, and as Benjamin points out that and you pointed out as well, Nina, that this is sort of brave that they're making these that, that, that things are said in these ways. But really, like what prevents the bravery from happening precisely is material conditions in the first place. So the filmmakers who aren't able to express themselves because of um, the ever more um, unequal and corporate um situation that they're making films within and obviously this then affects the way that we think you know even unconsciously but you know just just to i i've heard lots of people talk you know because obviously things are getting worse and worse and it's interesting where people identify what the starting point is or whether it was oh if if only people had just voted a certain way in brexit or versus a certain way in trump i think we can universally say that everybody is like fuck the situation's really bad now whether you're left or right or capitalist or Democrat, like I think universally, everybody's very critical of what's going on. Like we, it's completely untenable. It's so unequal and it's so unaffordable. But I, you do hear though that it's sort of like often, oh, if only these idiots hadn't voted for Brexit. Like this idea that Britain is in the situation it is because of Brexit, when it's like actually Brexit is a symptom of the kinds of things that are displayed in this film that had been going on for decades already up to this point. And this is just you know, unfortunately, what's even more scary is that there's not just one. I mean, even, you know, the Thatcher blame is just one, um, you know, scapegoat that that Thatcher was a symptom of her own time in the first place. And this is like a real wider decades long inevitable process that that is really fucking terrifying. And now we're at this point that I think universally we can all say is totally fucked. Well, nobody provided an alternative and I think that's, you know, in the past, when you have a mess like this, people would have to bear responsibility for it. You know, when the Depression hit, you called the shanty towns Hoovervilles, you vote them out, and the people who come in, they are trying to defend, you know, the FDR Democrats were by no means socialists, they were trying to defend the existing order, but there was an acknowledgement that you had to take concrete action to defend that order. You had to change it in some way. You had to update it in some way to make it more resilient. And the attitude post-2008 was that the forces for resistance were so weak and uh, so poorly organized that there wasn't really a need to properly address what had gone wrong, that you could just patch it up with quantitative easing and bailouts and just go on. And people... We're not willing to put up with that. The thing is, you know, yeah, it is true that they were poorly organized and they didn't have 
much of a sense of what to do, but they did come up with something to do, and it was to vote for the Trumps and vote for the Brexits and all of that. And you know, expecting people to just go along or assuming that if people are poorly organized, they can't cause trouble. Now, I think that, that that's really what got a lot of the, the Obama and Cameron types. And that whole generation of politicians is gone, and you don't see people like them elected anymore, really. You know, I, I remember seeing a picture from the Obama administration. You had, you know, Sarkozy and you know, Obama and Cameron and um, you know, Merkel. These people, it's a generation of politicians that are going away, and the new people that are elected are not of the same type. Uh, and it's because no alternative that is consistent with pluralism has been offered to people. And that leads people to look for other solutions that are not real solutions. But uh, it, it's very frustrating because there were a lot of people in the tens who talked about what needed to be done and said that there needed to be change. And there was even some discussion at points. You know, I remember Gordon Brown and Sarkozy talking about a second Bretton Woods or, or doing some kind of real meaningful reorganization of the international system. There was a little bit of chatter about it in 2009, a little bit. But as soon as things evened out just a little bit economically, it was decided that that wasn't really necessary, that they could get away with just going on as it was. And we've been paying the price for that, and not just economically, but culturally, as uh, our refusal to do anything to update the economic system, to make it work better, has piles and piles of cultural consequences and produces so much resentment that is so easily directed against various different groups of people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's it's it's the real tragedy. It's the real <laughs> tragedy, and it's it's amazing. But it is amazing, you know, in terms of like consciousness. And as you say, like things were discussed, and you know, Bernie in twenty sixteen and all that was like, I don't know if it could have happened, but it was ha something was happening. But this is where you know so much, and I guess why we get so worked up about. And it's interesting we haven't talked about the woke stuff for a long time, and I think woke has. Um, you know, people pe people get very annoyed about work, and I think you know uh, it, it's not quite it doesn't quite have the like cultural influence that it used to. Um, but um, yeah, there is this still this um, more kind of like aesthetically left wing silencing, um, and it's 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 like this logic that prevents the kinds of dialogue and the kinds of possibilities from being talked about it it really needs to be foregrounded and it's so easily shut down when i look at what certain quote unquote left-wing publishing houses are putting forward at the moment in terms of um like obviously like market-based propaganda and it's often couched in sort of like complex theory and all this kind of stuff and that's what passes for the left. It, it's and I, yeah, it's shocking. It's really shocking. But you see these 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 same publishing houses that were maybe doing stuff that was quite interesting, like um, eight years ago. You know, it's just sort of like now it's like oh, the robot mm. human. Let's just destroy every human interpersonal bond and just give up on left wing politics and do corporate propaganda. Now, part of it is, is the hope industry quality to this. You know, Left-wing politics, in large part, especially in the Anglosphere, is a kind of hope industry that sells people who are critical of the system on some possibility of a better future, a kind of way of getting people to continue to libidinally invest. And it's, it's a kind of reverse coin of the Elon Musk crypto libertarian bro thing, both kind of futurist narratives that are not grounded in any actual deliverable outcome. I love the way you very, what do they yeah. succinctly put it? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hopium, right? But like, what is, 
left wing in left wing discourse is the non-oppositional, uh, in a Hegelian sense, not a Fukuyama sense, end of history type stuff, which is basically engaging in contradiction, democracy, discussion, open-endedness. And it locks it down into yeah. oppositional, yeah. like, if you do this, this will happen, which is not left-wing. I mean, I think it's worth noting in, in passing, you know, just to remember... Um, you know, Mike Davis, who's just passed away as, as somebody who represents a form of leftist thought, which was, you know, pluralist, kind of multi-methodological, uh, engaging, humanist, uh, you know, popular in a way. Like he, is, he himself was very humane and very socialist as a human being do you know what i mean like i think there's a whole generation of, of leftism or of that 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 mode of being a leftist which is kind of sadly on the wane you know and then these kind of figures are, are 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 leaving us and you know i i mean i agree it's there's something kind of it's there's also something kind of i about shoot the left shooting itself in the foot right like there's a kind of in in many ways, like how to, how to put this, it's like if if they want to argue against a democratic pluralist world, and they they want to shut down free speech, and they they want to have a world of techno you know technocracy and censorship and punish people and for the wrong thing you know wrong thought whatever, it's like that will come to bite them on the ass. Like how how are people not? really understanding this that <laughs> if you don't hold open those those liberal gains and and even you know even marx well not what do i mean even marx marx is, is, explicitly makes this point that the the liberal values the bourgeois values of freedom and so on are are not bad in themselves it's it's merely that they're limited in their current form and sometimes they play an ideological story but it's not like those are the things you want to get rid of it's that you want exactly. more of those things Exactly. You know, you don't want to go. (laughs) Yeah. But this is the precise misunderstanding of people reading Marx. It's like this this is exactly the same thing that happens when people misunderstand psychoanalysis, where they're like, oh, milk is this snake is this. It's like, no, it could be anything. And it's like just because, as you say, like just because a bourgeois person does something doesn't mean that that is an absolute like pro-capitalist thing it's like this is a very complex thing that we need to separate from the person who does it and the phenomenon and things can unfold into universes like it's totally this oppositional logic and totalitarian and i would i mean i always use this term right wing but maybe you should have a different term for it but like the like it is non-left wing to be like this it has a black mark upon it because it's associated with this group, and it's a it's a very good, cap- sorry, I'm eating a skittle, capitalist like, um, you know, selling game to convince people to give up on certain things because they seem like things that, on a very simplistic two bit level, you can rationalise as something you don't want because historically it's been associated with something that you want to turn your nose up at. But it's like actually much more complex. And this is precisely why we need to have these intense philosophical and political discussions. I remember when the trucker thing happened, the trucker protests, a lot of left-wing commentators used as an excuse for not engaging with the protests. The idea that a lot of the truckers own their own trucks. So they're sole proprietors and therefore not workers. And therefore, any movement that involves them is a is a petty bourgeois movement rather than a labor movement. And a lot of the small family farmers are also, you know, they own something. They're small proprietors. I don't think that that is intrinsically disqualifying. Certainly in the 30s, the farmer labor movement used a lot of ordinary farm workers because you had a lot of pre-mechanized farms, so you did have a much larger farm worker component. But the small farmer who is put upon by these changes that are going on globally is still, I think, somebody that you could potentially engage with. And and the same goes for a lot of, of small 
business people. There's often a, an assumption that the petty bourgeoisie is completely off the table, or that people who are in the petty bourgeoisie are uh, just fated to be aspirational to becoming capitalists, that that's their fundamental character, and therefore you write them off, uh, and you don't engage with them. Mm. Uh, similarly, now with the police, there's an assumption that if someone's in a police union, that police unions, well, they don't count as real unions. And therefore, you don't engage with that kind of person or you don't try to bring that kind of person in. And people are starting from having disqualified so many groups from participation in anything positive that they're left with nothing to organize and nobody to organize. Another thing that I noticed this week that was dispiriting on the topic of dispiriting evidence that the left is not functional. Uh, you know, there was a, an open letter signed by 30 members of the House Progressive Caucus about the Ukraine war, uh, calling on the Biden administration to pursue a diplomatic solution. And the letter was very polite. It thanked Biden for supporting Ukraine. It was very much uh, within the framework of Ukraine are the good guys, Russia are the bad guys. But it warned of the possibility of escalation and called for a diplomatic solution. When that came out, the people who were involved in that letter were denounced heavily as aiding and abetting the Republicans prior to the midterms. And because the Republicans are now framed as a fundamentally anti-democratic force, Anyone who does anything which in any way might help them and criticizing the Biden administration or the Democratic establishment, even in friendly terms, potentially helps them. Uh, anyone who helps them is aiding and abetting the collapse of democracy and is therefore a useful idiot for the authoritarian right. That's the argument that now gets made. And what it means is that it's not possible for the left to articulate an anti-war critique of U.S. foreign policy. That critique can't come from the left because if it does, there's immediately this blowback. And then the representatives all rolled over. They all demanded the retraction of the letter, and the letter was, in fact, retracted. That's a tiny percentage of the Democratic caucus in the House, 30 people. Just 30. That's all they could get to sign it. And they couldn't even get those 30 people to stick to it. As soon as there was negative response from Pelosi yeah. and Biden, they all rolled over. And I think it's just evidence that uh, when there's a Democrat we, um, in office, the left mm. does not do anything. No, yeah. It's, and it's totally... No, it's, 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 no we, yeah. we had to... Sorry. Go for it, you go, you go. So, because uh, well, my camera's no, I was just off, it's really hard to know like when who's speaking when. So that's why no, I, can't, I can't see you speaking. Yeah, no, I, I was just saying that the, the um, reason. Yeah, yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just going to say, sorry, precisely on this topic of the letter. I mean, we had a piece by Michael Tracy uh, making, you know, this point. It's just absolutely insane. And I was thinking about it earlier and it's, there's something not only about this kind of Manichaean worldview of the progressive where it's like, yes, you can't cede an inch to even the idea of diplomacy with Putin because that's, you know, therefore you're approving of everything he's ever said about transgender people or something. It's like, you know, this absolutely blanket idiocy worldview where there is no longer any diplomacy there's no longer any sovereignty you don't negotiate with anybody even though you know there would actually be the better solution uh and may, may avoid nuclear war you know you you actually basically uh end up in a much more volatile situation and by the way i mean america is not technically officially at war with russia I mean, but this is the most proxy war there's ever been. I mean, even from a passive aggressive point of view, this is what I mean. Like all of these tactics, these these supposedly progressive, supposedly leftist tactics are just unbelievably passive aggressive, which literally is the worst way of dealing with any uh, problem, whether it's in your own personal life with a relationship, but not at the level of like global, like fucking diplomacy. It's like you, you can't be passive aggressive in this way. It's like, you know, you're trying to softly coerce people into like uh, having the right position on all of these things that you care about. But there's no democratic pluralism anymore in the sense that you, you still respect sovereign nations and you actually try to like fix things, even though you might have different uh, you know, views about the world. I mean, it's just, it's just the worst, like passive aggressive proxy 
war is so much more dangerous um, somehow than 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 like old school confrontation between countries, which at least you could say was grown up, you know, like at least adults were speaking to each other about, you know, trying not to immolate the, the planet but occasionally. This is the thing that it's like, it's funny that we were surprised that this film wasn't didactic, that it was successfully Marxist without being didactic. It's like, yeah, in this in this logic, this sort of utopic, absolutist self-confidence that like we know where we're going and we we are certain that this we can eliminate all harm and wrong from the universe. When people did diplomacy in the 20th century, look how terrible that was. But we know that we can eliminate and have this pure universe. And the way to do it is to shut everybody up. It's like, OK, do you even like this? This logic is so antithetical to the workings of the universe. It's insane. Like we we live in a complex, contradictory like uh, we we all contain multitudes. So this idea that you can't be a cop and be in a functioning union, it's like, no, precisely the left-wing logic is that you can be a part of a toxic institution that uses violence to defend capital and be an exploited party at the same fucking time. And I got to the point, it's funny, you know, with this, this, this sort of like right thing where... And and the trouble is, the trouble is, that is really sad, is that, yes, um, like, fascistic type logic uh, um, is a precise emergent of the um, economic conditions that we're in. So, yes, it is likely that we will have these outbursts, these fascistic type outbursts again, but we don't know where they're going to come from. We don't know. We have to have the humility to like, we couldn't have predicted. We did not know that Hitler was going to emerge. Retrospectively, we can see the material conditions that created Hitler. We don't know. And this sort of like, this horrible um, way of scaring everybody into thinking that there's an inner Nazi inside them and preventing them from having like, even within themselves, raising ideas that... um, don't fit into this oppositional, certain, absolutist, reactionary thinking. And to think that the stuff that doesn't fit into that, oh, that's evidence of being reactionary. Like the number of people I know who over the last several years have been freaked out into thinking that they might be a secret Nazi without realizing it is horrendous. But then when you get to the point where you're like, this is absolute fucking bollocks, just because you think like, oh, God, Maybe um, the work, maybe the work, the truckers were doing something that was actually had a point about capitalism. Maybe they're not 100 percent correct, but maybe they're not also 100 percent bad. Oh, fuck, I'm a Nazi. Like that's that's fucking ridiculous. (laughs) And I think a lot of people I don't know about a lot of other people, but a lot of people I know have also come to the point of realizing it's got to the that they there's no you can't let yourself be fooled by this bollocks. Well, I think that if you, yeah, it, it should be possible for us to recognize that people who are poorly organized will make all kinds of noise that is not precisely the right noise, but they'll make it for reasons, and those reasons are reasons we can engage with. And Right now, if you don't talk the way somebody who's gone to university talks, the sound you're making isn't the right sound, and people in elite institutions won't listen to it, regardless of the legitimacy of the grievance, of the realness of the hurt and the cause, and that inability to interact with anybody who doesn't speak university is afflicting the whole social and political and economic system. There has to be a way of incorporating the interests and perspectives of people who don't go to uni, who don't talk like they go to uni, who come from the kinds of places that do not produce members of the elite. And if there isn't, we're just going to keep having more of what we've been having. Anyway, we're at about an hour, so I suppose we'll have to leave it there. We're going to go do the B-side. Hope you'll join us there over on Patreon. Uh, But if not, 
Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.